Good morning and welcome to Storehouse 7 Ministries with me, Chris Whitland. Hope you're all well out there. So today we're carrying on with the book of Revelation and we are in part two now. Uh, we're starting from Revelation 19 verse 6. So if you've got your Bibles to hand, have them open there. And uh, most of the scriptures that I quote from is from the NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible. So let's get to it. Revelation 19:6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It is here uncertain who in heaven makes this wonderful declaration, but it is very likely proclaimed by, by a very powerful archangel, cherub, or seraph. Now, this angel is now beginning the triumphal proclamation that the wedding of the Lamb is now about to commence. I especially like it when the angel declares, Hallelujah for the Lord our God. Now, as Christians, I don't think we give angels the respect and understanding that they are due. In the Orthodox and Catholic traditions, angels are greatly revered and respected. Within certain parts of Protestantism, not so much. We think they are at our beck and call and that they do our bidding on God's behalf. You especially see that more in the charismatic uh, side of things. But we rarely uh, ponder to stop and think that angels are actually wonderful and very powerful beings who, although not human, are our fellow brothers in some way, and they are our friends, and we all share a deep commonality, God. He is the Lord, our God, our God being the God of humans and angels. They love him and serve him too. We are not going to replace them or make them defunct or obsolete. No, we will be standing shoulder to shoulder in worship, praise and adoration to our God. Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So finally, we come to the wedding of the Lamb when his bride, the people of God, who have been in a betrothal status, now finally get to consummate the wedding and go forth from betrothed to fully married. Now, I need to point out the obvious here. Note that the wedding of the Lamb does not take place until after, I say that again, until after the destruction of Babylon. Many Christians who are pre-tribulation put the wedding feast of the Lamb at Revelation chapter 4, but it clearly uh, but it's very clear from scripture that it doesn't take place until the end of the tribulation period. Well, what is the reason for this? Firstly, a Jewish wedding goes on for seven days. And so pre-tribulationists state that in Revelation chapter 4, the church is taken up from the earth where there is a seven-year wedding banquet. But there are clear obstacles to this theory. Um, I'm probably not making myself very clear here. So basically, why do the pre-tribulationists think that the wedding feast of the Lamb is at the beginning of the tribulation and not at the end, which the, the scriptures seem to quite clearly state? Um, it always amazes me that, I don't want to be rude, but I, I often see that it, it's almost glossed over. No one really asks the question. So I'm asking the question. It's quite clear it's not until the destruction of Babylon that then is the wedding feast of the Lamb, not before. So let's look at the pre-tribulation um, argument. So their argument is the wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb, like a Jewish wedding, lasts for seven years. 
totally agree with that because obviously seven days equals seven years so a, way, a Jewish wedding feast sorry it doesn't last for seven years it lasts for seven days but goes on uh, in the tribulate if we if we put this now to the future we say that one day equals a year therefore a seven day wedding feast equals seven years so the pre-tribulationists would say well let's put it at the just the beginning of the tribulation period so while that terrible stuff's going on, on the earth these the saints are rejoicing having a wedding feast in heaven however there are clear objections to this theory one firstly there is no scriptural backing for this especially as the wedding feast doesn't get a mention until revelation 19 for pre-tribulationists the wedding feast being at the beginning of the tribulation is a dogma and less of a scriptural fact for pre-tribulationists. Um, secondly, it doesn't address the inclusion of the church that appears during the darkest hour upon the earth during the tribulation period, including all those Jewish uh, people that come to faith as well. Thirdly, why would God reward the church of now, but not the so-called left-behind church, who are probably the greatest heroes of faith in all of living history, as they have to face off the devil and the Antichrist like no other generation has. Fourthly, surely it makes sense to have the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of the tribulation, just as it says in Revelation 19, so all believers are included. Then we have seven years of rejoicing as we enter into the reign of Messiah upon the earth. It makes no sense in a pre-trib model to have the church and Jesus partying in heaven for seven years while the greatest evil and torments go on upon the earth below. And those great torments will be to Jews and Christians. To have a party in heaven whilst there is such suffering upon the earth seems to me obtuse and out of place, not to mention, just not scriptural, because the wedding feast of the Lamb doesn't happen till chapter 19, which is after the destruction of Babylon. Revelation 19 verses 7b to 8. So that's the second half of verse 7. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now this passage of scripture is quite difficult to understand for many Protestants, yet Catholics, Eastern Orthodox and Messianic Jews generally have no problem with the concept of a church making herself ready and clothing herself in righteous acts. Now I've said in multiple places on this commentary in Revelation that we are saved by faith and works, just as it says so in James 2.24. Yes, we are born again by faith alone in Christ, but once our new life in Christ begins, we're then taken through the process of salvation, this is what we call sanctification, which is both a work and effort of us with the empowering and assistance of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.6 says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.15 But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behaviour. So you can see from these scriptures there's an emphasis upon us to do the, to do the holiness stuff. Holy Spirit will empower us and help us, but we have work to do. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Ephesians 2, 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James 2, 26, 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. At the time of the Great Tribulation, these good works will be acts of kindness, self-sacrifice, love and obedience for God when it really costs prayer, worship, laying down their lives literally for others in martyrdom. As Jesus suffered the most in his final hours upon the earth, so must the church become the suffering servant also in these final hours. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. And we must also suffer to make up that which is lacking in Christ's body and his sufferings. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Revelation 19.9 Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Here the angel is showing how much of an honour, a joy and a blessing it is to be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. When finally the church betrothed becomes the church married and then enters into union with Christ. It needs to be mentioned here that it is imperative that Israel gets saved at the end of days and enters into her full inheritance with the Gentiles. Why is this important? Because without Israel being saved, we Gentiles cannot enter fully into the fullness of the new covenant. The Apostle Paul alludes to this throughout Romans chapter 11. Let's look at verse 15 for an example. It says, for if their rejection, he's talking about Israel here, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If Israel's hardening and disobedience was necessary for all the Gentiles to come in, then understand how incredible it will be at the end of the age when, they're no long, when they no longer reject their Messiah and at the fullness of the Gentiles, then all Israel shall be saved, as it says in Romans 11.25. So as that scripture says, if their hardening was a blessing to the Gentiles and allowed us to come in, how much more will it be but life from the dead when the Jews come back into the fullness of their inheritance uh, and thus we come into then the fullness of the new covenant? So here's that symbiotic relationship between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And we have much to be thankful for as Christians to the Jewish nation, for from them comes salvation. Revelation 19.10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here John is so overawed at the joyous rewards of the saints by being invited to the wedding of the Lamb that he's momentarily confused, I guess, with his emotions of awe and intoxication of the wonders he has seen and the joy, and so falls and proceeds to offer thanks, praise and adoration to the ones showing him these things. However, in doing so, he's now guilty of idolatry by worshipping an angel. There is a very fine line between loving adoration and then worship. We always need to be keeping a check on our hearts that our love for God is so great that even, for example, love for our family and loved ones is lesser to that love for God. 
Jesus warns of this in the Gospels, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The meaning of this verse is clear. Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate his point. The love we have for God must be so much greater than our love for others and ourselves. So much so that the love we have for our spouses, children, family, etc. looks like hate in comparison. And this shows us how great the love we need to have toward our God. So if there is a saint, angel, mum, woman or thing that you adore nearly as much as you adore and love God, beware because you could be slipping very close into idolatry. The next part of Revelation 19.10 is a difficult phrase to understand. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, what does this mean? Well, the testimony of Jesus is quite simply the message of the coming one, i.e. that which is prophesied to come. So the testimony of Jesus in the scriptures, i.e. all the prophecies, shadows and types are proclaiming his incarnation, his return and him being king with his father over all creation, including the new heaven and earth. Therefore, a testimony and the testimony of Jesus is always prophetic in nature because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Now we now come to the part of Revelation where Jesus returns and he returns to pour out his judgment upon the Antichrist and his miracle worker and upon the nations for their apostasy against the one true God and for all the harm that they have done to the church and the Jewish people. And also Satan is bound for a thousand years in this particular section of scripture. So Revelation 19.11 uh, or when I say this particular piece of scripture, I mean this particular next section of passages that we're going to be looking at, which obviously moves into Revelation 20 and so on and so forth. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now here we now see Jesus as the warrior king. Um, when he first came to earth, he came as a suffering servant with no judgment, rather salvation. But when he returns at the end of the age, he comes as ruling, conquering king with judgment upon the nations and with judgment in his hands. Now, this hour is known as the day of the Lord. It is a dark and terrible day for the nations that have apostatized to the Antichrist. But for the believer, it is a day of rejoicing. For their redemption is nigh. We now see Jesus riding a white horse and this is not the same horse and rider which we see in Revelation 6 2 which some people try to link to. Uh, Jesus has the title faithful and true and this title denotes his covenantal nature. He is faithful and true to his promises and to his covenant. Jesus has promised through the scriptures that he will return. He has promised to be the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of our faith. He promised to redeem us from the enemy. He promised to bring peace to the earth. He promised to resurrect the dead, etc., etc. Jesus is faithful and true. He is dependable, just and right, for he is the way, the life and the truth. And when he returns, Jesus will bring all the promises to fulfillment upon the earth 
and to his covenant people. In this part uh, and section of Revelation 19, various titles of Christ are revealed. Faithful and true, uh, see also Revelation 3.13. The word of God, see Revelation 19.13, John 1.1 and verse 14. Another title, King of Kings, see Revelation 19.16 and Revelation 17.14. Lord of Lords, see Revelation 19.16, Deuteronomy 10.17, 1 Timothy 6.15. He also has a secret name that only he can understand. Revelation 19.12, Revelation 2.17 and Daniel 2.47. A name which cannot be understood can also be a name that cannot be comprehended. Why? Because Jesus is God, and God God cannot be fathomed, comprehended, or really fully understood. For he is God, he is infinite, and we humans are finite, and we are not God. Should be pretty obvious. Revelation 19.12 His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. A description of Jesus' eyes like flaming fire is actually nothing new in scripture. We see the same picture of Jesus in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Daniel 10 verse 6 says, His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a trumpet. When Jesus returns, he will not be appearing as a mild-mannered man, rather he will be appearing as God in human form, but in all his glory and power. Nothing like it will have ever been seen on earth and will strike terror into all those who rejected Christ and his gospel. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. However, for the Christian, Jesus will be a most glorious and blessed sight. Revelation 19.12 states that on his head are many diadems or crowns. And it is from this passage we get that famous hymn, Crown him with many crowns. The question to be asked here is, what are these many crowns? Well, we can only obviously guess and surmise, but most commentators would offer up this list or something similar. So Jesus wears the crown of victory because through his suffering and death, uh, he defeated sin and death. This victorious crown allows him to destroy every foe and have all his enemies overthrown. As Jesus is the king of kings, he wears a crown of sovereignty. He wears the crown of creation, for he created all things. He wears the crown of providence, for he is the source of life and sustenance. He wears the crown of grace, for it was by his grace and sacrifice he obtained eternal life for all who call upon his holy name. He wears the crown of glory for all who are glorified at death and his return owe their joy to the one who is the glory of God, who enabled them to rise to glorification. He wears the crown of the firstborn, so he has firstborn rights amongst all his brethren to preeminence. These crowns are of course merely suggestive. We don't know for sure what the crowns represent, but these titles given, I guess, are our best guess at what they probably are through what scriptures say. Anyway, 
that will do you for today. I hope you've enjoyed that and uh, we shall carry on with more of this soon. Um, just to let you know, I'm going to be putting some more time into this Revelation series because as you probably noticed, it's become a bit sporadic of, day, of late. So I'm going to put more time into it so I'll get through this much, much quicker. So you may see over the next several um, over the next couple of months maybe two revelations going up a week as opposed to one every other week and stuff because uh, it's time to get this done i've got to get it put into book format and and move on and actually in doing the commentary um, there's things in here that I've realized that I could have added and discussing it through i I, I run a a group as well where I actually to go through this in much more detail in a group format and that's been really useful to work out things and there's actually a few things where I need to tweak here and there so the book will actually be a better commentary than the podcast well you know podcasts are not too bad but the, the, the book will have more sustenance to it and there may be one or two areas that I've been a little bit um not quite clear on which will be much clearer in the book etc and there's there's a few scripture passages which I have said but didn't actually really go into much more detail where I should have done and things like that so the, the commentary the written commentary much better but I need to crack on with that as well so anyway so until next time God bless you all and thank you to all that, that listened to this and, and the comments that you've given me over a period of time it's been really encouraging and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have in writing this commentary I've learned a lot myself um, a lot of teaching here is stuff that I've learned over the years but there's a lot of things that as you research and look into these verses you're like well I never knew um, so it's been good for me as well so we've all been on the journey so anyway so until next time God bless you all see you again soon bye bye